How's everybody doing? Everybody have Merry Christmas? Fabulous. Marvelous. Stupendous. There aren't enough words like that to describe Christmas. It is a divine mystery indeed. I always say, when they say Happy Holidays, I say Merry Christmas. <laughs> Sometimes it's a concerted effort to remove Christ from public culture. Other times it's rather innocent. Right? So it might help uh, having a little discernment how you respond there. Sometimes people just do it very innocently. Other times they actually have a hidden agenda. It's interesting. I got a stack of Christmas cards from um, various vendors and customers at my work. And one day I had a whole handful of them and we were looking at them. And and um, I was showing them to uh, Cindy who works in my office. And I said, what's the common thread in all these cards? And she looks at them and she says, there's no Christ in the Christmas. Yeah. And... Uh, Apparently, Christ is offensive. Well, hey, we're not surprised. <laughs> right? Christ is offensive. Amen? And the world did not receive him, and the world has not accepted him, and the world will not receive you, and the world will not accept you when you come preaching Christ. Right? Beware when all men speak well of you, says Jesus. Amen? Amen? Shall we pray? God, our Father, we honor you and we bless you and we praise you. Oh Lord, we do recognize today that you are the creator of all things, that you uphold all things by the word of your power, that you, in fact, give to all life and breath and everything else. We thank you for the gracious gift of life. We thank you, God, that you would be so kind as to bring us to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Lord, that we might even treasure his cross and treasure his precious blood. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this knowledge. More than this, that we might even know Jesus Christ and know you, the Father. And this is eternal life to know you. God, we thank you for this knowledge. I pray for all who are in the hearing of my voice, if they do not know you, that God, through your word, this day, that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus. God, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, in our homes, in our families. We thank you, God, that you are convicting us by your Holy Spirit and conforming us into the image of Jesus. We thank you for the hunger and the thirst that we have to be like him, to be more and more like him in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. And Lord, today as we look into your word, I pray that you would teach us more of your gospel, teach us to discern right from wrong, truth from error, teach us of the true nature of saving faith, God, and teach us to discern false faith. Help us to see clearly Help us to examine our own lives, God, to make sure that we do possess genuine faith. Oh, Lord, you can do this alone by your Holy Spirit. And so we invite you this day, God, open our eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. <clears throat> okay. Well, with that, we've been on the topic of the Lordship of Christ. And we've been talking about the fact that Jesus is not just a Savior, but He's also the Lord. Amen? And that when you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you receive Jesus Christ the Lord as well. Amen? And we've been talking about exactly what that means. And, and in that discussion, we, we talked about the fact that even among so-called evangelical Christians, that there is quite a bit of confusion about this topic. However, as we've been discussing it and looking at the scripture, we've seen that there's really not anything confusing at all about it. Amen? But that uh, trusting Christ as Savior and Lord is for, one, for us to give a life response to Christ. Amen? So that everything that we have becomes His. That He possesses us. He owns us. We were bought with a price. Amen? And so we, we were looking at the Scripture and seeing that the call in the Gospel to have saving faith is also a call to obedience to Christ. Amen? And that's what it means for Him to be Lord. It means for us to submit our life to Him as our Lord, as our Master, to do what He says. And, and not simply to uh, uh, agree that He exists and that He is who He says He is, but to respond with our life to Him in submission to His Lordship and in obedience to His commandments. Amen? And so that the summons to faith is also a call to repentance, and a call to repentance is a summons to obedience. Amen? Because when we, when the gospel calls us to repent or to turn away from our sins, it's, it's also calling us to do what is right. Amen? Which is to turn away from our sins. And so we are to forsake our sins and do what is right. Amen? Both sins of omission and sins of commission. Amen? So, <clears throat> with that, we, we talked about the fact that, um, that Obedience is a gospel mandate that the Bible is calling us to obey Christ. That the gospel is calling us to obey Christ as Lord. Amen? And anything short of that is, is uh, uh, reducing the gospel to something other than what it really is. Amen? And so it's very important then for us to understand the nature of saving faith. And we've talked about the fact that in the gospel, in the New Testament, in the teaching of Jesus, and in the teaching of the apostles, that this uh, nature of saving faith is expressed in many different ways, in many different forms. And we looked at those, and we see that the Bible presents it in many different ways, many different pictures, many different types, for us to understand and come to a grasp of what saving faith is really like. And so we talked about these different types that Jesus calls us to a master-slave relationship of lifelong perseverance and service. And so when he's teaching us in his parables, he speaks to us as if he is our master and we are a slave. Amen? And then that Jesus calls us to be born again and to be recreated by God through faith. And so the Bible uses this analogy um, of, of being born again to talk about regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And that, that it, it's imperative for us to be born again by the Spirit of God in order to be saved. In fact, 
That's what it means to be saved, is to be born again by the Spirit of God. And if you're not born again, you're not saved. Amen? If you're not born again, the Holy Spirit doesn't live inside of you and you have not been regenerate. And, and therefore, you are not the temple of God. And God doesn't live inside you and you don't possess eternal life. You're still separated from God by your sins unless you've been born again. Amen? Furthermore, Jesus calls us to bear fruit and produce the marks of true faith. And so in his teaching, he gives us these examples of how somebody who's truly born again, somebody who's a true believer, that their life is going to bear witness of that in the fruit that they bear. Right? Their life is going to produce the marks of the kind of faith that saves. So that we're not just saying we're a believer, but if you look at our life, you see that we are truly a believer by the things that we do and the things that we say. Our life is marked by obedience to Christ's commandments, right? Not that we'll never sin again, but that our life is in a pattern of obedience following Christ, and we're being more and more conformed into the image of Christ as time goes on. We're being sanctified by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then also Jesus calls us to humility and brokenness and to deny self-reliance. Remember how we talked about the fact that you, you, you're not relying on your own ability to please God in order to be saved. Amen? Amen? If you are, you're not saved. Because you can't be saved that way. Right? In fact, saving faith is a reliance upon Christ and what He has done before God in order to be saved. So that we give up religion in order to be saved. There isn't some religious work that you can do in order to earn the favor and the merit of God. The only way you can be saved is by placing your faith entirely upon Jesus and His perfect life and death in order to be saved before God. In order to be justified before God because of your sins. Amen? In order to have the wrath of God propitiated. Remember that discussion about, about justification? And we're going to talk about that at great length starting next week. Hopefully we get through this. So, um, but in order to do this, we've got to come humbly before the cross. We've got to come humbly before God and agree with God concerning our sin, that we've offended Him, that we're worthy of death. And, and that well, apart from His mercy, there's no way to be reconciled to Him. And this we do in humility. This we do in brokenness before God. We say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? Remember that we talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector who were praying, and one had a picture of humility and brokenness and thus of true faith, and the other was a religious snob. Right? And he came to God praying, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Right? Because I do this and that and the other and I do all these goody two-shoes things and God, you're just so pleased that I'm living on the earth. Right? And, and, and Jesus uses him as an example of a mere professor and not a true believer. Amen? And, and then of the, of, the, of the tax collector, he says that that man would not even lift his eyes toward heaven but beat his breast saying, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? And Jesus said of that man, he went down to his house justified. You see, because true saving faith 
has this nature. It's broken in spirit. It's contrite. It has contrition before God. It's on its knees, beating its breast and won't even lift its eyes toward heaven. Because it realizes its unworthiness before God. And it realizes Christ's worthiness before God. Amen? The gospel calls us to humility, brokenness, and to deny self-reliance. Jesus calls us to lose our life to follow him. If you're not living for Christ, you're not saved. That's what it means to live for Christ. That's what it means to be born again by the Holy Spirit. It means that you have surrendered all that you are for all that he is. You can't, you can't be a mere professor. You can't say you have faith but have no works. That kind of faith is a dead faith. Are you with me? And so it's important that we examine our life in light of these truths. Jesus calls us to lose our life to follow him. Question, have you lost your life to follow Christ? We say, what do you mean by that, preacher? I mean the same thing Jesus meant. Right? That you give up everything in your life that you value more than Him. And that He has the preeminence in your life above all those things, whether father or mother or sister or spouse or whatever they be, whether they be race cars or vintage JBL speakers or football or whatever it is. Are you with me? If any of those things possess a higher place in your life than Christ, then you haven't been born again. You're in idolatry. You're breaking the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. Right? And so it's important that we understand Christ calls us to lose our life to follow him. Which includes any ambitions and desires that we have that are not consistent with him and his plan and purpose for our life. Amen? Those things we must forsake in order to follow Christ. We must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him daily. That's what he says, Luke 9.23. And then lastly, Jesus calls us to love him supremely above all other things and worship him. Jesus is to be our first love. He's to be the thing that we love above all other things. That's what true saving faith looks like, family. If you have true saving faith and we examine your life, we should see evidence there that you love Christ above all other things. That He is supreme in your life. Okay? And it's not to say that you do that perfectly. Okay? But it is to say that your life has turned from loving yourself and being the captain of your own ship and pursuing your own ambitions and dreams and desires to loving Christ and Him being the captain of your ship, and you pursuing Him and doing the things that He loves and desires. Are you with me? There's a a shift in the pattern of your life from following self to following Christ. Amen. Are you with me? Okay. Those are the things that the Gospel is calling us to, and those are the characteristics in the Bible that show what the nature of true saving faith is. Okay, And as we've seen in those discussions, that stuff comes right out of the Bible. Well, lately then, we've been on this topic, starting last week, of true believers 
and mere professors. And we've been saying that in the New Testament, the writers are laboring to show us the difference between true believers and mere professors. Because they want us to examine the reality of our own faith so that we can be saved. So that when we look at our life and we see inconsistencies with the nature of saving faith, then we say, aha! (laughs) Right? I need to be saved. I need to come to Christ. I need to come to the cross. I need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Right? I need to forsake my sins and love God. The, The writers of the New Testament are laboring continually to show us the nature of true faith and the nature of false faith. There's all these pictures and portraits in the teaching of Christ and the apostles that show us what false faith is like. For instance, the example I gave you of the Pharisee who came and Jesus is teaching us about prayer, right? But in teaching us about prayer, he's showing us the nature of saving faith. That there is this Pharisee who's just a mere professor. He's a hypocrite. He doesn't have the genuine kind of faith that's acceptable to God. And here's this wicked, sinning tax collector, but that guy has the kind of faith that saves. Why? Because in brokenness and humility before God, he recognizes his sin, and he cries out to God for help outside of himself. You see, the Pharisees relying on himself to be saved, and the tax collector is relying on God's mercy. You see that? Okay, and so there, the Bible is showing us the difference between true faith and false faith. The Bible is showing us the difference between a true believer and a mere professor. Okay? What's the purpose? For us to be a true believer. For us to have the heart attitudes of that broken tax collector. Are you with me? Okay, so then. True conversion then, as opposed to mere profession, is seen by submission to the Lordship of Christ. Here's how important this issue is to the Gospel. Okay? That the nature of true faith to, to men, one to another, is seen by the way we live our life in submission to the Lordship of Christ. So that if I tell you I'm a Christian, right, but then I go out and I practice sin on a daily basis and you see me involved in it, what am I saying to you? That I'm nothing but a hypocrite. Amen? And so that's important that I'm actually a doer of the word that I preach to others when I confess to be a Christian. Amen? It doesn't mean my life is absolutely free from sin. It just means that my life is in a pattern of following Christ. And that my, you, you, you see the virtues of saving faith in my life manifested through the things that I say and the things that I do. Amen? And so, um, um, lastly, before we dive in here, uh, there's two kinds of people in the world. Okay? It's real simple family. There's two kinds of people in the world, right? There's, there's people who've been born again by the Holy Spirit, and there's people who have not. There's people who are saved, and there's people who are not. There's people whose destiny is the presence of God forever, and there's people who will be shut out from the presence of God forever. Two kinds of destinies with two kinds of people, okay? Sheep and goats. Another biblical picture, Right? 
And so it's important to understand there's no middle ground. Either you are or you aren't. Either you're the temple of the living God or you're not. Right? Either the Holy Spirit lives in you through regeneration and he's in the process of sanctifying you and making you more like Christ or he's not in you. Amen? There's no middle ground. You can't walk with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. Okay? Here's the deal. You're walking through the world, but if you're a Christian, your life is submitted to the rule of God. And you are thereby in the kingdom of God. Remember how the kingdom of God is the rule of God? Remember that? What does it mean? It means he's come to rule us. How come? Because he's Lord. Right? That's the whole issue. Lordship. Right? And so this is what we're saying. The, di the difference between a true believer and a mere professor is when we look at the life, we see the actions of a true believer and we see the nature of true saving faith. Are you with me? Okay, so then, talking about uh, true conversion or mere professors. True believers or mere professors. Last week we left off at the bottom of page 88. And um, we're saying then and therefore that there's a theme in the teaching of Jesus that shows that true faith produces good works consistent with that faith. And more than that, that those who do not submit to Christ as Lord or reject him by disobedience are condemned as not possessing salvation. So Jesus would say something like this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is making a distinction between people who profess to follow him, right? Versus people who actually do follow him, right? Which, um, which we want to call a true believer. And you could see that in Jesus' teaching, he clearly teaches, Luke 13, he says, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So here, put this in your gospel, family, okay? Many people will seek to enter the kingdom of God, but will not be able. Do you understand? It's not just because somebody is professing to be a Christian that allows them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? <clears throat> but it's those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven who enter into heaven or enter into the presence of God. Are you with me? Jesus is telling us here that we should strive to enter by the narrow door. What's the narrow door? Christ. Christ is the narrow door. He's the only way in. No other way. He's the gate. He's the doorway. He says to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way to be saved. So you have to give up everything that you are to possess what Christ is in order to get to the Father. You understand? You have to forsake yourself. Deny yourself. Yourself has to die. You have to lose your life to follow Christ. Okay? That's what the gospel is calling us to. And anybody who's a true convert has done this. 
Anybody who's a true believer has done this. This is what it means to truly believe. Okay? Now, here's the deal. When you have that kind of faith, when you have the kind of faith that says, I'm a hopeless sinner, I can't get to heaven on my own merits, I need Christ, and then you lay hold of Christ by faith, believing that he is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he did, right? When you have that kind of faith, your life is going to change because the Spirit of God is going to come in and powerfully transform your life and give you power over sin so that now your life changes from walking in constant and continual sin to walking and following after Christ and hungering and desiring to do what is right and good and true and noble. Are you with me? That's a change that God does on the inside. Okay, and only God can do that. You can't change your heart that way. All you can do is cry out to Him and realize what a failure and a sinner you are and how hopeless you are before Him on your own merits. And when you come to Him with that kind of faith, it's going to transform your life so that repentance will be seen. We'll look at your life and we'll see you turning away from sin and doing what is right. Okay? And so that true saving faith repents by its very nature. True saving faith is obedient to Christ by its very nature. When you have the kind of faith that saves, you will do the right thing. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean you'll never sin. It doesn't mean you'll always do the right thing. It means that your life is going to become a pattern of striving to do the right thing. Okay? And when you fail and you do the wrong thing, you're going to come to Christ and you're going to say, Lord, I blew it again. And there's going to be a brokenness and a humility and a humble attitude that says, God, I need your help. I'm a sinner. I keep on sinning. I'm desperate. Help me. Amen? Which is the cry of every true Christian. Right? If you're not crying out to to God for help in your battle against sin, you're not saved. Okay? (laughs) Maybe you didn't even realize there was a battle with sin. You're definitely not saved. Right? But a true Christian goes through his life day by day by day in a war against sin. Okay? He's in a war against sin. He hates and loathes his sin as if it is the stench of death. Are you with me? How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? Okay? You loathe your sin. You hate your sin. And yet you keep doing it. Right? And that's the thing you loathe about it. Even worse. Right? Okay? That's the nature of saving faith. It hates sin and it loves God. And it's focused on striving after God and wanting to be like Christ. Are you with me? And it's not relying on its own abilities to be righteous. It's relying on God's abilities within us to overcome sin. Okay? And this is what true saving faith is. This is what it means to be a true believer. Top of page 89 This teaching was also carried on by the apostles as they explained the gospel and the kingdom of God. For instance, Paul writes in Titus 1, he says, They profess to know God, right? But by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Here's Paul, he's saying, look, here we have these professors, people who profess to know God, but what? 
but by their deeds they deny him. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying if you really know God, you're going to have deeds that agree with him, not deeds that deny him. You see, this is a theme in the teaching of the apostles. How about 2 Timothy 3? Look what Paul says here. And this would characterize our age. He says, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. You see, it's people in the public culture who have a form of godliness, Right? What is it? 78% of Americans claim to be Christians? I mean, if you're reading your Bible, you know that that's a bunch of hogwash. Amen? You know what hogwash is, right? (laughs) I'm sorry. Let me tell you, 78% of Americans are not Christians. Now, 78% of Americans might profess to be Christians. I think that's a rather high number myself. There's plenty of mere professors, right? Whole churches full of them who teach them to do exactly that, to profess a faith, right? But they do not teach them that that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, right? On the contrary, they warn nobody, right? Because the gospel is all about your best life today. Right? Instead of being all about Christ. Instead of being all about the blood and the power of the blood. Instead of being all about repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It's not about losing your life to follow Christ. It's instead gaining all your dreams and your goals and your ambitions and desires. And guess what? Big grandpappy in the sky, God, wants all of those to come true for you. Because God is for you. He's not against you. And we take these gospel truths and we pervert them to mean something other than what they truly mean. Right? Of course God is for you and not against you. If you're a Christian... (laughs) Let me tell you, if you're not a Christian, God is against you. And you're in big trouble. And if you don't repent, you're going to burn in hell. That's the gospel, family. That's not some big prophet of doom message. That's the gospel. That's the gospel Jesus preaches. This is why they put him on a cross. They hated his guts. Why? Because he warned them that if they didn't repent, that God would judge them and they would be consumed by the wrath of God. That's the last thing in the world they wanted to hear. They wanted him to affirm their religious system. Right? He didn't do that. They put him on a cross. Okay? And that's the gospel we preach. We warn people. That God is in heaven and he's very angry about sin. Okay? And that God is also love. 
and that if you come to him through the cross, you can be reconciled by the love of God in Christ. And that God will then love you and accept you into the family and change you and give you power to overcome sin. Not only that, he'll be for you. He'll begin to bless you in your life. He'll begin to fill your life with all good blessing and peace and joy and glory. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Right? And all of those good promises are held out in the gospel, which is about the cross and about the blood and about repentance and faith. Are you with me? And if you don't come through that door, you don't get the good blessings of God. Instead, you abide under the wrath of God. You with me? And so you, you can't just take all the good gospel promises and go sell that to the culture as the gospel. That's not the gospel. Okay, that's a reduced form of the gospel that really is teaching people to, to not focus on the main issue. Right? And so they miss the whole point. They're looking through the forest and they can't see the trees. Okay? It's a big problem. And so it's important for us to be able to articulate that message well. Look how James put it in James chapter 1 verse 22. He said, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You see, it's one thing for us to sit back in the chair when the preacher's preaching the word and say, Amen, brother! Right? That's one thing. It's another thing entirely to do what it says. Are you with me? Now, I'm, I'm always asking you, are you with me? Right? Because <laughs> I'm looking for an amen. Right? I want somebody to agree. I want to hear. Get, give me a witness. Right? In other words, tell me that the truth is true and it's real. Right? And it's right on, man. But family, if we don't live it, if we don't go out and we're not an embodiment of those truths we affirm, it's empty. We're mere professors who do what James says, delude themselves. We're hypocrites like the Pharisee. You understand? You understand? Okay. And so then, we are commanded again and again to repent and stop sinning. Read through your Bible. Read through your New Testament. We're commanded again and again to repent and stop sinning. Okay? This is a fundamental part of Christian life. That is, that we submit to the Lordship of Christ and obey His commandments. And so Paul would say in Romans 6, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What's Paul saying? He's saying, stop sinning and do what's right. Sum that up in one word for me. Repent. Repent. Amen? First word of the gospel, family. First word of the gospel. Repent. Okay? Check me out. The very first thing out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry is the word repent. Okay? Matthew 4.17. Okay? How about Romans 8.12-14? Listen to Paul going on further about our salvation. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You see what Paul's saying? He says, we're under obligation. What are we under obligation to do? Not to live according to the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit. Because if we're living according to the flesh, Paul says, you're going to die. In other words, you haven't been saved. You haven't been born again. You're walking in the flesh because you're utterly earthly. You're carnal. You're not spiritual. You are abiding in death and you're under the wrath of God. Are you with me? But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the misdeeds of the body, and you see what he's saying? He's saying we do those things by the power of the Spirit. We're not doing those things in our own strength, but the Spirit of God's come to live in us, and now we have power and victory over sin. And every true Christian experiences this. They experience power over sin. Even though it's a constant struggle, right? We're, we're little by little by little, we're getting the upper hand. Amen? I don't know about you, I've been saved for 18 years. My life has changed massively from the day I got saved. I mean, good night. I'm, ent- I'm an entirely different person, you know? And, and that should be everybody's testimony, that, you know, we're going from, from being what we were to becoming more and more like Christ as time goes on. And over time, we ought to see big changes in the way that we think and the way that we act and the people that we are. Amen? The gospel powerfully transforms our life. Look what Paul writes in Ephesians 5. He says, Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You see what Paul's saying to the church? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, stop sinning and do what's right. Are you with me? And he's pointing out specific sins. And then he warns, he says, if you live like that, you won't even inherit the kingdom of God. Amen? And this is a theme in the teaching of the apostles. They're, they're laboring to show us the nature of true faith and the nature of false faith. And they're laboring to show us that true believers obey and follow Christ. And they strive to do what's right. And they strive to put off sin. Right? What do we do in the fellowship when, when one among us is sinning? Right? Well, we all gather together to seek to restore that, that brother or that sister. Restore them to what? To repentance. Right? So that in the process of church discipline, the church is crying out to the sinning brother, Repent! 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 Right? Don't, don't make us put you out of the fellowship. Right? Change your actions. Change your deeds. Because if you continue like this, you're not one who belongs among us. Are you with me? Maybe you've never heard of that. <laughs> Trust me, it's a Bible teaching, and it goes on, right? So what do we do in the fellowship of the church? Well, we seek to do what's right. We seek to walk in faith and in love, and we, we seek to follow Christ and walk in the Spirit of God, right? And, and when, when, when one among us is struggling with sin, we all strive to help that one to overcome, Right? We gather around, we love them, and we pray for them, and we help them, and we encourage them. 
And, and with some of us, it takes years and years of encouragement to help us get through certain sins. Amen? Amen. And, and, and yet, here's this whole thing. We're striving as a family of people to overcome sin. Sin in the lives of individuals and sin as members of our corporate body. Amen? A proper understanding of salvation issues from the book of 1 John alone and shines light as clear as a sunbeam on these issues. A true Christian has been born of God because God has decided to give him life. And that life is eternal by nature. When we have been born again, we have become new creations with an eternal destiny. You cannot turn from genuine faith because you are kept by Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Bible never teaches that someone who is genuinely saved can reject or disengage themselves from Christ. Someone who apostatizes must have had at one time an orthodox and essential profession, but not a genuine new birth. But as John explains of the apostates or antichrists, 1 John 2, 18 and 19, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not all of us. What's he saying? Well, he's saying when they don't remain in the fellowship of the church, instead they go on out from us, right? teaching otherwise and behaving otherwise, right? They show what? They show by their going that they don't belong of us, that they're not among us, right? And, and so this is, this is, this is a, a clear sign right here, a clear sign of apostasy, right? Well, I don't need to go to church. Why do I need to go to church? Right? Can't I be a Lone Ranger Christian? You know, it's, after all, it's not going to church that saves somebody. I mean, if that were true, right, we could just all go to church and we'd all be saved. <laughs> right? Well, I want to ask you a question. If somebody's truly born again by the Spirit of God, and they love God with all their heart, and they worship God, and they've lost their life to follow Him, don't you think that these people would go to church? Amen. How about not just go to church? Let's talk about this. Don't you think that they would be loving and serving the church? Because that's their great desire in life. Now they see the church as the family of God, as their dear brothers and sisters. Not only that, they realize they have a vital ministry, a gift that God has given them to serve that church. Right? And instead of going out and pursuing their old dreams and goals and desires and all of that, so that the focus of their life is all on self, now the focus of their life is focused on loving and serving the church. Even as they love and serve Christ. Are you with me? You can't, you can't come to Christ and divorce yourself from the church. It doesn't work that way. Okay? When you come to Christ, you become a member of the church. And you belong in the church, loving and serving the church, and manifesting your love to Christ by serving and loving the church. Okay? And this is, this family, this is crystal clear in the New Testament, specifically in the book of 1 John, which is where we are now examining how First John talks to us about being a true believer or a mere professor. There, if one were born of God, he could not continue to sin. Now think about this. 
John says, if you're born of God, you will not continually live in the practice of sin. That's what he says. Think about how this relates to the Lordship of Christ. The idea here is that the true converts do not live in continual patterns of sin. So, for instance, the word for sins in 1 John 3, 6, here means ongoing, continual practice of sin. And that further, if one is living in an ongoing, continual pattern of sin, he or she is only a mere professor and not a true believer. Look with me, if you will, at the bottom of page 89, 1 John 3, verses 6 through 10. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Okay? Now what's John saying? Here's what John is saying. It's real simple. Okay? If you've been a born again by the Spirit of God, you are not going to live in a continual practice of sin. Okay? It's that simple. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, one thing it means is you don't live in a continual practice of sin. Instead, you have forsaken that and now you do what is right. This is what he's saying. Did he not say he who does what is right is righteous? He who sins is of the devil, right? Two kinds of people in the world here in 1 John 3, right? People who are righteous and people who are of the devil. Do you see that? <clears throat> These contrasts are meant to speak to the true believer of how to discern false teaching from fruit true teaching about the faith. When an apostate continues in his sin, he shows the reality of his eternal state and divine calling. When one continues in righteousness and truth, their works are the proof positive of saving faith. 1 John 2.29 says this, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Right? Didn't Jesus tell us of the false teachers? He said we know them by their... By their fruit. So when you look at their life and you see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control and a hatred for sin and a love for God and compassion and humility and you see all those good glorious fruits, what's the conclusion? He's a Christian. He's a true believer. He's born again by the Spirit of God. Amen? But when you look at their life and you see that big list of sins, right? They're boastful, arrogant, lovers of self, lovers of money, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, malicious gossips without self-control. They're brutal, haters of good, treacherous, conceited, reckless, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What's the conclusion? They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They talk about faith, okay? But they don't walk the walk. Amen? And so this family is crystal clear. 
here in the book of 1 John. When an apostate breaks fellowship with Christians and begins to live in continual patterns of sin, they show themselves to be children of the devil. Look with me, 1 John 3, verses 9 and 10. Here he says, No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Now look at verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Remember what I was telling you? What it means to be born again is to love and serve the church. Remember I told you that? You see what that says right there? Here is how the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not love his brother is not a child of God. You understand? And of course, John goes on in this context. I don't want to take it out of context. He goes on to describe what that looks like. Right? It means that you, you, meet, you meet brothers, Christians, basic needs by caring for them, by caring for their life. Okay, which means, presupposes, right, that you're involved with them, that you know who they are, and that you live your life in order to care for them. Right? Are you with me? That's verses 16 through 18 of 1 John 3. But in talking about true uh, believing and mere professing, John makes it crystal clear that the distinguishing mark of true faith is the fruit or product that comes from it. So here's the deal, okay? True saving faith has a product. It produces a certain kind of life. It produces certain kind of works. It produces something that's very evident or, like he said there, obvious, right? It's the difference between an ongoing practice of sin and an ongoing practice of righteousness. It's obvious to us all. That's the point, okay? So that when the, when the product of one's life is a continual pattern of sin, they manifest that the true nature of their faith is only mere profession and not the fruit of being born of God. 1 John 4, 7 and following. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Amen? Those who have been born of the divine will persevere. Okay? If you've been born of God, this is what's going to happen. You're going to make it through till the end. God's going to see to it. He's going to finish that good work he started. Right? And like Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. Amen? Why? Because he's the good shepherd. He's going to keep us. When you come to Christ in genuine faith, and you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, let me tell you, you rest firmly in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Amen. And He is the one who is going to care for your soul until the last day and raise it up before God forever in heaven. Amen. Are you with me? Amen. Okay? And this is very clear in the Scripture. Okay? Those who've been born of God persevere. Not because they persist in their own spiritual fervor, but because Christ the Good Shepherd knows his sheep, and he will lose none of all that the Father has given them, but will raise them up at the last day. Look at 1 John chapter 5. Here's what it says about those who've been born of God. We know that no one who is born of God sins, 
But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. You know who he who was born of God is? That's Jesus. Okay? The scripture says, if you've been born of God, you don't live in the continual practice of sin. But rather, Jesus keeps you from it. Because he's the good shepherd. And you know what it says here? The evil one does not touch him. You understand? In a destroying way. Right? The devil, he can tempt you, and he will tempt you. Right? Till the cows come home, the devil will tempt you. But Jesus will keep you. Are you with me? Who's your faith in? I know you believed in Jesus to be saved. Do you believe in Jesus to be sanctified? Do you believe in Jesus to persevere till the end? Do you believe that it's Jesus who's going to get you to heaven? Right? It's not your own self-reliance and your ability to overcome sin. Right? It's your self-reliance and the power of Christ to keep you from sin. Right? Our sufficiency comes from God. Amen? Not from ourselves. It is obvious then that there is a so-called faith, a mere profession, which is really no faith at all. If someone claims to have faith but does not live a life consistent with the teaching of Christ, his or her faith is useless. True saving faith is that which produces the fruit of God's Spirit in the life of a Christian. Faith in Christ is not just mental agreement with the gospel message, but it is a life response to the gospel which produces actions consistent with the children of God. Now, family, do you see how important this is to our understanding about the gospel? You see what I'm saying? You can't just be a mere professor. And if you're trying to tell people how to be saved, and then you're starting to disciple them, right? Okay? Listen, you can't just tell them to believe. There has to be a life response. They have to lose their life to follow Christ. Right? They have to come to an end in themselves and be born again by the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. Are you with me? It's very important that we understand this truth. Okay? It is imperative that people receive Christ as Lord and come to Him in repentance and in faith which means that they come in obedience to his commandments. And that the first word of the gospel is to turn their back on their sin and to begin to follow Christ by doing what is right. Are you with me? You can't come to Christ and hold on to your sins. If you do that, you have not come to Christ. Okay? And you can't lead anybody to Christ unless you're telling them that message. Okay? You with me? I don't know any other way to make it more clear. I mean, to me, it's, it's crystal clear. I hope it's crystal clear to you. It's all right here in the book. Amen? Amen. How about this? The demons believe the gospel message. And they know it is true. But they have not conformed their lives to it. Many people are just like them. They have believed that the message is true, but they have not submitted their life to Christ to obey him. James 2, 14 and following. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Answer? No. No. If a man claims he has faith but he doesn't have deeds consistent with that faith, is that the kind of faith that saves? No. James' obvious answer to his rhetorical question, right? No. That kind of faith can't save him. 
Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. Now notice, a brother or a sister. Now who's that? That's my good, loving family in the church. Because now they're my brothers and sisters, right? Because now I've been born of God. I've been born into the family of God. Now the church is my family. Amen? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Right. Another rhetorical question. In the same way, faith by itself, and it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, (laughs) if you really are a true believer, you're going to have actions that show that. Right? The right kinds of actions. You're going to be living in righteousness because we're under obligation, remember, to the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, right? If you have the kind of faith that saves, you won't be like a demon who believes the whole message but is still a demon. (laughs) Amen? Are you with me? You know what demons do, right? They lie, they cheat, they deceive, they destroy, right? They live constantly consumed for self and by self. Right? Christians live for Christ, consumed by Christ, striving to follow after Christ and lay hold of Him. Amen? Amen. Faith is the reality and proof that our hearts have been cleansed and we have been reconciled to God. Faith has substance and that substance is a transformed life. Remember how Jesus defined faith in Luke 9.23. He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, he is calling for a transformation of one's life. It is a willingness to deny oneself and go where he goes and do what he does. It is not our good behavior that earns favor with God, but our good behavior is the product of the kind of faith that saves. If we realize that Christ had to die for our sins, how can we walk in them any longer? Are you with me? If you like that broken tax collector that's in there, God have mercy on me, a sinner... Is he going to get up and walk outside and head for the brothel? Is he going to get up and walk outside and head for the bar to get smashed with all of his buddies? Right? Are you with me? No, that humble, broken tax collector, he hates sin. Right? And and so he's not going to get up one day and and, and profess to love Christ and, and truly pour out his heart before Christ and the next day turn his back completely on him. Are you with me? It's not that his life is free from sin. It's that he's striving to be free from sin. And he recognizes the great war and the great struggle with sin. Not only that, he's driven by a love for Christ. He's driven by a passion for Christ. And he longs to be with Christ. And he longs to know Christ. And he longs to lay hold of Christ. Amen? 
Jesus is the gospel. Eternal life is the free gift of God given to those who repent and have faith in Christ. It is by grace through faith in Christ alone that we are saved, not by our works. But this faith produces a life surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and is a testimony of Christ's power over sin. This is why we are exhorted toward good works. For instance, in Ephesians 2, 8 and following. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen? So here's the deal. I mean, you've been saved by God, right? Because God decided in the councils of eternity past to visit you with the Holy Spirit and bring you salvation. Right? Like he says in Exodus 19.4, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Amen? And when he did that, what do you suppose was the design in God in saving you? Right? That you should so let your light shine before men that they should see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Which is why God does everything that he does. Right? To manifest his own glory and excellency as God. Amen? So that's why he saved us. Why did he save us? To manifest his own glory and excellency as God. Well, how's that going to happen if we keep walking in sin? Are you with me? It's not. It's not going to happen. Right? Unless it happens in the fire of hell. God will be glorified there too. But it'll be the justice of God that's glorified. Not the loving kindness and mercy of God. Are you with me? I don't know about you, but I want to glorify him through loving kindness and mercy. Right? Not by fire and brimstone. Trust me, you don't want your worst enemy to go there. So, therefore, true saving faith is seen in contrast to mere profession by a submission to the Lordship of Christ, which produces a life of good works and obedience to God's commandments. Okay? So just to sum this up, the good works don't earn us any favor before God and they don't save us. Are you with me? They are the product of what happens when we're saved by God. Amen? Okay. I want you to notice something on page 91. I am going to deal with the text in James 2. Okay? Because, and I'll send you away thinking about this. James 2 and verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now how are you going to stuff that in your gospel pipe and smoke it? (laughs) Right, well that ought to trouble you. If you've been paying attention in this class for the last five months or four months, right? That verse of scripture ought to trouble you. It does? does? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I want to help you get to the bottom of that and understand what's being said there, okay? And so next week, Lord willing, we'll take up there and we'll move on from there. And then the other thing I want to tell you is I'm going to be starting in on a, a series on the Reformation 
and justification by faith. Okay? In that discussion, I'm going to talk about Roman Catholicism. And I'm going to talk about it in regard to what the Bible has to say about it and what the Catholic Church teaches. Why am I doing this? Because it's at the heart of the Reformation. In other words, if you are a Protestant, then you are protesting something. Okay? Well, what is it that you're protesting? Or more formally, what is it that the Protestants were professing back when the Reformation happened? Right? And what is at stake in that argument? Okay, well, the argument is an argument about justification by faith. Okay? And uh, so I hope to make that clear for you. And I want you to know if you have Catholic roots, you will be offended by some things that I say. So, you know, make up your mind right now um, to pay very close attention to what I'm saying. And if you want to examine those according to Scripture, um, I'm not hiding here. I'm more than willing to deal with any of those issues. And just like, as always, if you have questions, maybe even in controversy to some of the things I've said, feel free to write them down. And if you would like me to address them before the class, I will. But I'm not going to have verbal arguments with anybody sitting in the chairs. Okay? This isn't the place for that. However, I will openly address your questions if you write them down and ask me to do so. Okay? So, with that, let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we honor you and we bless you. We thank you for your glorious gospel. God, we thank you for Jesus, our Lord. Oh, Lord, that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And that, Lord, by his stripes we are healed. We thank you for what Christ has done. And, Lord, we thank you for free grace. God, that you have saved us by your own strong arm. And that, Lord, all we need to do is trust Christ and follow him. And so, Lord, we ask, help our unbelief, God. Help us in our weakness. Strengthen us, dear Lord. Be our refuge. Be our shelter, God. Be our strong tower that we might run in and be saved. Oh, God, give us faith to trust to believe, to live. We honor you and we bless you because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen.